Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good morning, Crosswinds. If you're a newbie, it is good to have you. Uh, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors. We are in a series of studies working our way through the book of Genesis. If you're just joining us, that's not much of a problem. We didn't get that far. We've only just completed chapter 1. Today, we're going to do chapter 2. Now, chapter 1, in a big picture sense, it gives us a panoramic display of God's awesome and incredible power. It tells us how God created everything in existence in this entire universe in only six literal days by simply His spoken word. That's the, all the stars, all the light, the huge expanse of space and time and all the intricacies of our cells and DNA, everything done by His word. And we're left in awe at our God's power. Now, when we come to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be left in awe again. But this time, it's not about His power that leaves us in awe. It's His love, His incredible amount of love for you and me that is also simply incomprehensible. Now, before we jump into the text, I need to talk about the relationship between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Because when we get into Genesis chapter 2, it will at first look like we have an alternate and contradictory account of the creation story. And some people who are educated far beyond their intelligence, they write in books that in Genesis chapter 2, we have an alternate creation story. And I'm going to tell you right up front, we don't have two contradictory creation accounts. We have two complementary stories that fit together. And you'll see as we go through this this morning why some people misunderstand this. Before we get into the main part of our text, I need to finish up one final verse on the creation story from last week. It is Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. Let me read it, and I want to point out simply two things. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The first thing I'd like to point out is that little phrase where it says, the generations of the heaven and the earth. If you were around in the very first week we looked at this book, you'll remember that I told you that little phrase, the generations of, it occurs ten times in the book of Genesis. They are essentially chapter markers where Moses closes a section and then he begins another. And he gets to the close of another section, he says, and these were the generations of Adam. Closes that section and moves it on. So what we have here is Moses is saying, this ends the story of the creation of the heavens and the earth. What comes after this is not another story of the creations of the heavens and the earth. End of chapter. The other thing you'll notice is this little phrase, they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And all of a sudden, you said, wait a minute, in the day 
at the Lord God made the earth and the heavens? I thought it was six days. Well, day here must not be used in a, the sense of a literal 24-hour day. Well, maybe when I see the word day in the Bible, should I always use it as a 24-hour day? In fact, maybe, maybe the creation story wasn't six 24-hour days after all. And our minds begin to think about these things. What you need to know, that in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word yom, which is the Hebrew word for day, sometimes it's used of a period of time like it's being used here in Genesis 2, chapter 4, in the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Other times, it's used to describe a literal 24-hour day. Well, how do we know the difference when one is a literal day and one's just describing a period of time? Well, here's some things you need to know. Number one, whenever the Hebrew word day has a number with it, it's always referring to a specific 24-hour period of time. Day one, day two. It's talking about literal days. We're on the first day and the second day. It's talking about literal days. If it's not talking about 24-hour days, it just talks about day in general. Second thing you need to know, the days of creation that we studied last week they had an evening and a morning with each one of them, didn't they? Literal 24-hour days are the days that have evenings and mornings with them, right? So the days in Genesis chapter 1 are 24-hour days. Third thing, and I forgot to put it in your notes, but I thought of it last night when I was reviewing, so I'll tell you this. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, remember Exodus was also written by Moses, so he's probably pretty authoritative to describe what he talked about in Genesis chapter 1. When he talks about an Exodus, he says this, In six days God made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, you and I work six days a week, and we rest on the seventh day. Was Moses talking about six literal 24-hour days? Yes. It's the same reason he says we work six literal 24-hour days and rest on the seventh day. So that gives us closure to the creation story. And the, when you use the word day in creation, it is 24-hour days, even though sometimes you'll see it doesn't always mean 24-hour days. But in Genesis 1, it did. We pick up. Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. This is talking about what our planet was like before we messed it up. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And in a moment, he's going to say, this is when he creates Adam. And immediately, you realize we ran into a huge boatload of difficulty. Here's the problem. Last week, what day of the week was it when God created the plants? Three. What day of the week was it when God created Adam? Six, 
here, all of a sudden, it looks like we have no plants created, and God is about ready to create Adam. And all of a sudden, those who are educated beyond their intelligence go, oh, we have two contradictory creation stories. Really? Do you think Moses was that dense? When you have what looks like to be an obvious problem in the Bible, there are two ways to handle this. One is to be prideful, and many people are prideful, which they say, oh, the Bible must be wrong. And they put themselves over the Bible, and they write about how the Bible was wrong and needs to be corrected and reinterpreted and reunderstood. That's pride. The other way is humility, which is like this book has been around a long time. It's going to be around a lot longer than I ever am when I'm all done. This book was translated out of Hebrew into English. Now, Greek is a little bit more English-like. Hebrew is very different than English. So maybe there's something I'm just missing in the translation here. Maybe I need to study this verse more, look at it a little more closely, and ask some more questions. And when you begin to do that, this verse begins to explain itself. Notice here, it's talking about two specific kind of plants had not grown up yet. Not all plants, just two specific kinds, field plants. So we are talking about a special kind of plant, what is a field bush, and a small field plant had not grown up yet when God made Adam. Other plants had been. When you start to say, well, What's the big deal about a small field bush and a small field plant? So this is where you're thankful that when you're at seminary, they made you take Hebrew. You didn't like it when you took it. It was a very hard course, but it's helpful at times like this. And you look in your Hebrew dictionary, and you do a little bit of Hebrew work, and this is what you find. A bush of the field can be literally translated as a thorn, a thistle, or a weed. In other words, when Adam was going to be created, at that time, there were no weeds in the fields. Secondly, what is a small field plant? The Hebrew on it is very interesting because it means a plant that requires cultivation, like barley, wheat, corn. You farmers know what I'm talking about? Field plants. There were no weeds in the fields when Adam was created, and there was no farming plants that require cultivation in the fields when Adam was created. And interestingly, the word for ground here literally means arable land or the kind of land that you would grow a crop on. So, Genesis 1 and 2 are not in conflict. It is just these specific kinds of plants which had not grown up yet. No weeds, no farm plants. And why? Because there's no rain. Not only that, but there's no farmer. They haven't created Adam yet to farm the ground. That makes pretty good sense. Now, I really wondered, even after I read my Hebrew dictionary and did some work and stuff, is this really just talking about those two specific kinds of plants? And then I read a little further into Genesis chapter 3. When Adam sins, remember he gets kicked out of the Garden of Eden. 
And we're going to see in a little bit that in the Garden of Eden, it was a free lunch. Remember, he ate the fruit off the trees. He didn't have to go and plant wheat and cultivate the ground and harvest wheat and grind it to make bread. He didn't have to do that in Eden. But when he sins, what happens? It says, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth from you. All of a sudden, thorns and thistles are now part of his life. And you shall eat the plants of the field. There you go. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So when Adam sins, like the free lunch in the Garden of Eden is over with, he has to now go cultivate the fields and make his own bread by planting, harvesting. And it's not even that much more fun because guess what is introduced? Weeds. Somebody needs to eventually invent Roundup because you have weeds that are fighting against what he does. So this is exactly what is going on. Every time you guys use Roundup and spray a weed, thank Adam. Weeds came about as a consequence of sin, is what it's saying. And when you go to, and you have to do all that hard work to go harvest your corn and harvest your wheat and you get all sweaty and work hard for it, that also is a consequence of sin because it used to be free lunch all the time in the Garden of Eden. Now, just to confirm this, we find this also in Genesis 3.23. What happens when uh, Adam's kicked out of the garden? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. And what does he have to do now? To work the ground from which he was taken. Next thing we find out. When Adam was formed, it said there was no rain on the earth. The hydrological cycle that we know today where the sun comes down and it warms the surface of the earth and the mist goes up and the vapor goes into the clouds and it's all held in the clouds and a cold front comes in and it condenses and drops on the ground as rain to water the ground, that didn't take place. And as far as we know, it was actually a very thick vapor canopy that covered the earth. When did rain first take place? As far as I can tell, about 1,600 years later at the time of Noah, when he says, God opened the very windows of heaven, and water came up from the deep, and water came down from the top. Until then, as far as I can tell, you had no rain. Interestingly, as a consequence of Adam's sin, you got weeds and the need to farm. As a consequence of the people in Noah's day, their sin, all of a sudden, now you have rain and drought. Well, then you say to yourself, well, okay, if you didn't have rain, then how did water get onto the earth to grow crops in the first place? And this is what it says. It's very interesting. It says, a mist went up from the surface of the earth to water the earth. You study this word in Hebrew. The word for mist can go either one of two ways. It could be mist or it can be a spring. Look in your footnotes in your Bible if you want right now. You'll see a footnote right next to there saying it could be a spring. And I'm going to tell you my opinion. I think this is talking about 
a mighty spring that went up from the surface of the earth and actually watered the earth, not a mist. You'll see why in just a moment, why I believe that. And don't kill me if you disagree. You just, I'm doing the best I can, guys. Let me summarize here. Summarize. Adam is created. We have no weeds, no planting and harvesting, no rain. We have the earth is watered by a mist or a great spring. Story pauses. Talks about the fashioning of Adam. Where does life come from? Genesis 2.7. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Doesn't sound like much, but it's interesting. The word formed, in Hebrew it means carefully crafted, sculpted. It means done with precision, done with beauty, done with delight. Like a, a sculptor would take a piece of marble and create the statue of David. You know, done carefully and intricately and precisely. This is the same God who spoke the entire creation into being. With just His Word, He comes down and out of the dust of the earth, He doesn't just make a mud pie, like, you know, like a snowball you make in the winter, slap it together. He carefully crafts in the dust of the earth, Adam. Now, just so you know, it wasn't just Adam that was carefully crafted and carefully built. It was you and me. What does it say? In Psalm 139, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knit, knitted me together in my mother's womb. Praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it full well. Does anybody here have like a knit cap from Grandma? Or a knit blanket? Anybody? A couple of you guys. Now, by the way, you've noticed those handmade knit caps, they don't end up in the Goodwill box, do they? Because they are carefully built, specifically made for you. They're expressions of deep love towards you. And what the Scriptures are saying is that God carefully crafted you in your mother's womb, and He knits you together by hand just the way He wanted you to be. Just like He crafted Adam with precision and beauty out of earth, He knits you together in your own mother. And when you sit there and you say, you know, I feel like I'm garbage. I feel worthless. I feel like just a number, another number on the piece of paper. I don't feel significant. Know what this says. You are not just slapped together by God. You are carefully crafted just the way God wants you to be. You were knit together in your mother's womb just like God crafted Adam out of dirt. And it gets better. What does it say? It says what God did is He breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils. 
Adam was not here on one side of the room and God was on the other and he happened to like breathe in his general direction or cough at Adam, what happens is this is like mouth to mouth. This is a kiss. God literally puts his lips on Adam's lips and gives him the kiss of life. He breathes into the dust of the earth and creates Adam into a living being. The same God who made this entire universe gave Adam the kiss of life. That's how deeply he loves him, and that's how deeply he loves each one of us. Do you guys get the picture on this? Isn't this so incredibly cool? Isn't this amazing? And when we feel worthless or when we feel useless, you know God crafted you, and God literally kissed you into existence. By the way, uh, we just recently watched this movie called Ultron. Do you guys like the Marvel comic movies? Thank you. I got a couple other, you know, Marvel guys. Captain America. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. Well, Ultron, yeah. Well, we remember the movie Ultron? Ultron is like a computer program that comes alive. He sort of like takes over everything. And the question I began wondering is like, is that ever going to happen? Is man ever going to create life and it's going to take over things? No. The only one who can take and create life is God. He is the one who took dust and created it into Adam, a living being. But not only does God give us physical life, but the Scriptures say that if today your heart is soft towards God, if you love Jesus, if you have repented of your sin, the only reason you are a Christian is because God out of His love has also given you Spiritual life. Spiritual life is not something we generate. It's a gift that God gives. Look what it says. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, because God gave him life. But the last Adam, Adam became a life-giving spirit. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will, spiritual life. So we've covered what the earth looked like when Adam was created. We've covered the creation of Adam. Now let's go to the Garden of Eden. What did the Garden of Eden look like? And by the way, in this section, I'm going to get into some speculative theology so if some of you disagree with me on some of these things, that's okay. Some of these things will be speculative, but they're really cool. So I'm going to teach them to you. They're very neat. Let's read the text. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Piston. It, came, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. 
And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. This is exciting stuff. Let's work our way through the text. Eden. What does Eden mean? Literally, it means luxurious. It means delightful. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, calls Eden paradise. Isn't that a good picture? It's paradise on earth. So while God has created everything on earth and everything is good, apparently God's goodness upon the earth is not equally distributed upon the earth. The best place on the planet is Eden. You know, if you want to live any place, it's in the Eden place because that is the best place. That's the high rent district is where you want to go. It's the best real estate. Now, in Eden, there is a garden. Garden in Eden. It's God's garden. In the garden, it has nothing but the best of trees. No ugly trees. You guys like, you know what I'm talking about, ugly trees? No ugly trees in here. And these trees are bearing the best of fruit. So, incidentally, I'm convinced there was no prune trees in Eden. Because my mom used to always feed me prunes, and I do not like prunes. So I'm thinking they would not have been in the garden, because this is only the best of fruit here. You know, oranges, tomatoes, mangoes, good stuff like that. That's the picture of what we have. It says these trees were made to spring up. And I did a little Hebrew work. The word or the phrase made to spring up literally means to grow abundantly and thickly. So Eden is the best place on the planet. The garden, the trees are growing abundantly. They're thickly. There's no ugly trees. They're just covered in luscious, wonderful fruit. This is pretty cool. Now we also saw that from Eden... Into the garden ran a river. Earlier I told you that it says that the earth was covered or was watered by a mist. But if you look at your ESV footnotes, you can see that means spring also. And literally it means a spring that runs down a mountain. And This is what I'm thinking is going on. There is a spring, not a little spring, but a mighty spring, a mighty rushing river that is coming up out of the earth, that is running down a mountain in Eden, that is winding into the garden, winding through the garden, watering the garden, going out of the garden, and then it breaks into four other rivers going to the four corners of the earth that everything on the earth is watered by a mighty river that comes out of Eden, up out of the ground, and waters the earth. That's what I'm thinking. I'm not 100% sure, but that's what I'm believing. Now, um, a couple other things. As I was pondering this, I ran across Genesis 13.10. What does this say? And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, 
like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. I'm thinking, okay. The Jordan Valley, he says, is watered like the Garden of Eden. Well, how is the Garden Eden watered? Was it just mist? Probably not. It was probably river water that wound through the garden. So this is saying the Jordan Valley was well watered by river water like Egypt. How is Egypt watered? Do you guys remember a river over there? called the Nile River, which is all these different branches that water Egypt. So you see where I'm going here? Now, in my mind, I began to wonder. I know this is speculative, and I'm not 100% sure if this is exactly how the entire surface of the earth was watered, but there's were the, these parallels. Parallels between Genesis, the first few chapters, and Revelation, the last few chapters. You remember that in the first week we noticed all the parallels between Genesis and Revelation? I said, I wonder if there's parallels between the Garden of Eden in Genesis and the New Jerusalem in Revelation. Because obviously God was meant to dwell with man in the Garden of Eden in Genesis and God dwells with man in the New Jerusalem. Look what happens when you read about this. In Revelation 22.1 it says, And then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the very throne of God and of the Lamb, and through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations." So what you have in the New Jerusalem is the river of life flows from God's throne and goes down and it provides water in the new creation and it goes right by the tree of life. In the Garden of Eden, you had a great river that is flowing, obviously, down some kind of a mountain in Eden, flowing through the Garden of Eden by the tree of life and then watering the rest of creation. You see how these things seem to run together in parallel? And then I wondered, I wonder if there really was a mountain in Eden. Was there some kind of mountain that, uh, where God may have dwelled upon and then He had His garden separate from it? No, I'm getting speculative here, so go easy on me. But I was thinking about this in preparation for next week as we looked at sin and Satan's fall, and I, I ran across this talking about Satan. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub, and I placed you you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Interestingly, Satan was in the Garden of Eden, and it also talks about a mountain of God. Now, I don't know. It seems like this may have been how the entire earth was watered, because water is life, isn't it? You don't have water, you don't have any life. And the source of the water for all of the life came right down the mountain of God. 
Isn't that pretty cool? Now, interestingly, we have the Garden of Eden in Genesis where God and man touch and they dwell together. We have the New Jerusalem where God and Adam live together once again in Revelation. But between the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem, do we have anything else like this? We have the tabernacle and we have the temple. Now, in the tabernacle and the temple, if you study it, many of the features of the Garden of Eden are woven and brought to bear in the tabernacle and in the temple, like the cherubim, woven into the fabric, some of the curtains. The cherubim cover the ark. The candelabra, it's the tree of life in the tabernacle and temple. It's just like the tree of life that was found in Genesis. Look it up online. It's pretty cool to check this out. So it seems like it continues. It, when God is going to dwell with man, it starts in the Garden of Eden, then it's in the tabernacle and temple, and then it ultimately ends up in the New Jerusalem. What was man's job in the garden? The answer comes in verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Well, this is good. Because, guys, our job is not just to sit there around and become fat and happy on fruit, right? We don't just like eating. We need a job. We need to be able to do something. And so God, in His kindness and goodness, knows that. He's given Adam the best place to live. He's given him the best meal plan that could possibly be offered. And now he gets a job. He's going to work the garden and keep the garden. Now, working the garden sounds pretty straight, and keeping the garden sounds straight, but there's actually a little more to it than you realize. If you look at the duty of the priests, the Hebrew word to describe what the priests were to do in the tabernacle and the temple is the same Hebrew words to describe what Adam was to do in the garden. Because remember, the tabernacle and temple are little gardens of Eden. Let me show you. In Numbers 3, 7 through 8, And they shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting. As they minister at the tabernacle, they shall guard all of the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister. Minister is the same word as working. And guarding is the same word as keeping. What this is saying is Adam's job in the garden was not just to be the gardener, but to be the guardian of the garden. Adam's job was not just to be a worker, but he was to be a protector of what was given as his home and God's, God's home. That was his job to be a worker and a protector. Now, men, I want to talk to you. Today, we have, in many ways, the exact same job as Adam. Our job is to be a worker and a provider of our home, but we're also to be a guardian for our home. This means that whose responsibility is it to make sure the kids are watching wholesome television? Moms or dads? Dad, you're the guardian. 
Whose responsibility is it to make sure that your kids have an internet filter on the computer so they're looking at what is healthy and proper? Your job. You are the guardian of your home. Whose responsibility is it to make sure that your wife, when she drives to work, she drives in a car that is safe for her? Your responsibility. You're the guardian. You're the protector of your wife and your child. Just like Adam was given the job of not just being a worker in the garden, but being a guardian of the guardian. Now, notice when we get to next week, when Satan comes into the picture, does he go to the guardian to tempt him? No. Bypasses him. But Adam's job was to protect it. Let's look at the temptation. And I'm not going to spend much time on this because we're going to spend a lot on it next week. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So in the center of this luscious garden there are two trees. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And the command is do not touch of the, or do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Some people wonder, was this fruit poisonous or something like that? I don't think it's poisonous because everything God has created is good. What it is is simply this. God says there is one thing that is off limits. Now, you'll notice when we get next week what Satan wants Adam and Eve to do is question God's goodness. Has God been good to them? Off the charts good to them. Gave them the best place to live on the planet, the best food on the planet. Gave, them a, gave Adam a job. You know, give, he is in fellowship with God. God cannot almost at this point be even better or kinder than he has been. Just one thing. Now let me just pick up with, with the last thing. Because God always saves his best for last, doesn't he? It's a good finish. This is the grand finale. Let's read about it. Then the Lord God said, You know, it's not good for the man that he should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whenever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took out one of his ribs, and he closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, Wow, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Up to this point, God had already blessed the socks right off Adam. Remember, best place on the planet, best meal plan that could possibly happen. He's got a great job because, guys, we need to work. 
He's the gardener and the guardian of the garden. Things are going incredibly well. In fact, sometimes guys, single guys, when things are going so well in life, we, start to re- we forget to realize that we're missing what could be God's greatest gift and what actually is God's greatest gift outside of Jesus. We're missing a wife. So what God does is He sort of does a bachelor awareness program for Adam. He, he says, let's do a pet parade. Let's start bringing all these animals. And it's, it's parade them in front of Adam, and Adam gets to name them, which is, by the way, is the right thing to do because when you're given dominion over something, the way that dominion is seen is you name what you're given dominion over. Like parents, when your kids were born, what was your job? Name your child, because whose kids are they? Your kids. You have dominion over your kids, so your responsibility is to name your kids. Adam has dominion over the animals. His responsibility is to name the animals. And after naming the animals, he's sort of going, you know, none of them really quite fit. The dog, well, that was my best friend, but really sheds. Uh, The ape, Mrs. Ape put a dress on, but she was just too hairy of a woman for me. Well, and the parrot, I did have a conversation, but just kept repeating back everything I wanted to say. Nothing really quite fits for me, and I'm alone. And God's like, aha, got you just where I want you. Puts him to sleep and takes something out of him, a rib, and forms that into a woman. I want you to notice something. When Adam lays eyes on Eve, this is the only time he bursts out in song and poetry. The best living conditions, the free food plan, you know, the great job, nothing made him burst out in song until he was given a wife because God saved his blessed, his best blessing for last. Guys, can we say that's an amen? Amen. Amen. God gave us His best blessing in the wife that He gave us. Now, interestingly, a couple other things we need to know about this. Number two, a wife is the only thing that can complete a man because she is what was taken out of a man. Uh, Your job cannot complete you. Uh, you know, a boat or a fancy car cannot complete you. Another man cannot complete you. The only thing that can complete you and bring back what was taken out of you is a wife. That's the way God has designed it. She is a good gift. Number three, a wife is not a clone. She is designed to be a complement. A wife is not designed by God to be identical to you. She is designed to be complementary to you. And many of you guys are going, yes, now that I've been married a number of years, I realized I definitely needed a wife because there are things that I cannot bring to the equation that she definitely brought to the equation. Number four, a wife is his equal, yet also his opposite. She is 100%, you know, a human just like him, but she is completely opposite from him. She is not to be identical to him. So you guys are going, you know, my wife is so different. She's so hormonal, and I'm so straight thinking. And I'm like, you know what? God wanted it that way. He made it that way on purpose. It's what you need. Number five, a wife was to be a helpmate, helpmate 
under Adam, not a competitor with Adam. Sometimes couples, I see this, they think they're competitors. No, there is a clear order here. Adam names the animals because he has dominion over the animals. Incidentally, you noticed Adam also named his wife woman because technically he has given dominion over his wife, but yet she is equal to him. Not less than him, just given a different role than him. And lastly, we see God officiates the first wedding. And he leaves us a little pattern to follow. When people get married, they leave home. Then they make a commitment to the one they're going to be joined to. And then, and only then, do they become one flesh. Now, how can we apply Genesis chapter 2? There is one huge, beautiful picture here. In life, a lot of times, things go wrong. You end up sick. Sometimes you end up struggling with your grades in school. Sometimes people steal things from you. Sometimes people pick on you. And life falls apart. And I hear again and again people say to me, you know, if God loves me, why would life be so difficult? Folks, the problem with life is not God's love for you. The problem with life comes next week. It's sin. Sin that has either been done to you or by you. How God feels about you is incredibly clear in Genesis chapter 2. Look how he felt about Adam. Best location, best food, best job, and a wife. And some of you guys are thinking, well, I'm looking for the perfect wife too. Just so you know, she doesn't exist anymore. That was Eve. She was the perfect woman and she was given to Adam. So this is the situation that we have. And if you think that Genesis chapter 2 gives us a picture of how much God loves us, that is nothing compared to what we learn about Jesus. Because after Adam and Eve rebel against God and they're cast out of the garden and they're separated from fellowship with God, God takes the initiative completely and fully on Himself to send His own Son who lives the perfect life that we could not live. He dies on the cross in our place for our sin, the death He didn't deserve. He died for us out of love for us. And what happens is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we were brought back into the very presence of God once again. We're kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but we are put back into the New Jerusalem. And what the Scriptures say is we become the most exalted beings above the angels instead of below the angels. In Ephesians it says we are adopted into God's own family and we are now described as the most blessed beings in the universe. And that's because God loves us more than we could ever possibly imagine. If you think God's creation and the vastness of it blew you away last week, you need to understand that God's love for you, as seen in Genesis chapter 2 and seen in Jesus, God's love is even greater than the entire created universe for you and for me. Amen? Amen. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for out of love and obedience to your Father dying for us. We just thank you so much for loving us. And when we feel depressed, we feel overwhelmed, we feel insignificant, Lord, we 
look at the Scriptures. We look at Genesis 2 and the love you showed to Adam and Eve. And we look at this all of the redemption story, and we are just humbled that we do not deserve any of this. Thank you for giving us the love we don't deserve, all through Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.